Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a special episode of the Forever Mighty Post Game Show. We have uh, our favorite and um, multiple-time friend of the podcast, Josh Cooper, joining us today from The Athletic. Josh, what's up, man? Oh, not much. Not much. Just uh, enjoying the bye week and the all-star break and it is weird i'm just i mean i'm just not used to having this much time uh during a season but um you know i like it though it's good i mean the nhl and the pa wise up and kind of realized uh players that media alike need a break so um but i mean gms are still making trades so there is that issue yeah and, and you know in the uh the effect of that is um You've given us plenty of time to gather some dumb questions for you, so you should just be prepared for that. I'm ready for your dumb questions. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so, to handle my inner, inner Randy Carlisle. Yeah. So, I, I mean, we all know that, that Randy's been here and he's not going anywhere because all the, uh, the pieces that have come out about him having a front office job for some god-awful reason when his tenure is done as coach. But um, I kind of want to go back to what Bob Murray said last year. I know that uh, we've talked about this before, but we're at that point where it's just not working anymore. He said last year that the Ducks had to get faster to compete. And then he said this, you know, more recently that he doesn't believe this team can compete. But they, in my opinion, have kind of gotten faster. They've changed out some players, especially in the depth roles have gotten quicker. But since it's not working, is this just not an obvious system issue that he doesn't want? to kind of point a finger at a coach? It's so hard for me to tell on this. And look, I I totally understand the Ducks fan base is probably done with Randy Carlisle at this point. I see it on our comments. I see it on Twitter. I see it on pretty much every social account. I see it when I talk with fans. Um, I see it with friends I have who are Ducks fans. It it does feel like the, the end is coming here and it just, basically it's run its course 
Um, as far as just all these issues, it's so hard for me to tell because, A, I'm not a systems guru. So I, while it's quite obvious that teams coached by Randy Carlisle regrets from a puck possession standpoint, uh, we've seen this in, when he was in Toronto. We've seen this now here in Anaheim. Uh, I, I do, in talking to a lot of people just about the Ducks uh, the last few days, because really that's what I do during my bye week is I talk about the Ducks with a lot of people just randomly. Um, that's a joke. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> uh, I hope so. But, no, but, uh, but, uh, but you know, I, I think that injuries certainly played a role in them not being able to play kind of the system that they wanted to play. Um, they, they have a lot of guys who are out. Um, they have a lot of young players who, and I've heard this throughout the year from a lot of people who are not exactly very good defensively up front. Um, and I think that that sort of leads to a lot of situations where you can't, you can't play the system you want to play because, uh, people aren't responsible enough to fact check, to be there when breakdowns happen. And we've seen tons of breakdowns. And if you look at the website, natural Statric, you'll see, uh, the Ducks have far and away um, the worst high danger chance uh, Corsi four percentage in the entire league, meaning that other teams get way more high danger opportunities than they do, and that a lot a lot of that has to do with the breakdown. So it's hard to kind of change that system to go more speed based, and you don't have defensively responsible players to basically not allow the two on ones, which you saw in that St. Louis game right before the break. Ugh. So. Um, in, in summation to a very kind of loaded question that you had, um, you know, I, I really, like it's, it's hard for me to gather if this is very much a Randy type thing, or if this is just essentially an injury situation and combined with a transition year. Um, I want to say it's probably the latter more so than the former, which I know is probably not exactly what Ducks fans want to hear. Um, because I, I feel like the knives are always out for Randy Carlisle. And uh, it's fascinating because, and you guys can speak to this, and I was, I was thinking about this uh, right before, or as you're asking the question, um, was, you know, he's a guy that won a Stanley Cup with this team. And how many guys, and granted this is a second tour with the team, but like how many guys who have won championships, coaches specifically with their team, are this disliked by a fan base? Like, like, I can't, I even, like, I, I can't even, I can't, I don't think, I don't, I don't know. I mean, can you think of any offhand? I mean, no, no, you can't. I, I think like, it's because when you look back at that team and from what I've heard from a lot of people is like, that was a super team. Like you had, you had Timo Solani, you had Scott Niedemar, Chris Pronger. And, and not to say that Randy Carlisle had no impact on that. I just think how bad it's been and, and just how difficult it's been to watch the Ducks is why some people have turned in. I don't know. It, it is kind of like a, a mutiny where people have all of a sudden just forgotten that he won a cup back in 07. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, like, I, I think there are positives with what he does as a coach when he has the right type of team. I mean, he's an, he is an excellent matchup coach. And I do think that that team that made the Western conference final uh, back in 2017. Yeah. They probably should have been Nashville. Yeah. He probably got out coached by Peter Lobulet in that series. But he also helped them get to that point. A lot of the matchups that he that he went on and, and kind of the game plans he helped devise to beat some of these other teams. And uh, but I think now when he doesn't have the personnel to deal with it, I mean I think 
Um, I want to say it was, I forgot which blog mentioned it, but they were talking about that Pittsburgh game where it felt like everything just sort of fell apart when they had a three, nothing lead about how he hard matched Ryan Kessler's line against Sidney Crosby's line. And I remember turning to someone in the press box and I was just like, why in the world are they still doing this after like, you know, two periods and they kept going to that. And yeah, they changed the fence pairs every now and then to try to change the support level. But, um, I, I mean, it was, it was startling and also was sadly uh, emblematic of how far Kessler has fallen as a player because he just really couldn't keep up. And it was it's actually really painful to watch for people who have watched him for a long time. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, as, as far as Carlisle goes, I mean, I, I it, it's tough for me to say um, just because again, like I'm not really a systems guy. I don't really understand kind of how things break down look as a reporter you do know sort of what's going on you don't know everything that's going on but I mean the sense I feel just watching him coach watching uh the players play for him watching the fans every night yell fire Randy um I mean it's it just feels like you're unless there's some epic run left in these guys it just feels like you've kind of hit an expiration point I mean that you know, that doesn't mean that he gets fired this season, but it just it just feels like you're hitting that point where it's time for everybody to kind of move on. And you would think you he would after like 12 games of losing in a row and then somehow stumbling and getting two wins after the losing streak somehow. I think they played worse hockey in those wins and came away with victories somehow than they did during the losing streak. Well, the funny thing was, and look, I like actually, you know, I know we've talked about Bob Murray on this podcast before. I think Bob does a heck of a job with the hand that he's been dealt. And yeah, like clearly his Achilles heel is how he handles veteran contracts, but he gets a lot of players on their second deals on excellent deals. So I think that that's not something to sneeze up any stretch, but it was funny when I saw his statement where he was like, oh, you know, the Winnipeg game was an improvement. And you know, in my in my snarky brain, snarky side of my brain, I was like, "What? They blew a two nothing lead instead of a three nothing lead." Yeah, that's an improvement. <laughs> um, like, I know they played better in that game. Believe me, I did. But it was just kind of like, "Oh yeah, you only blew a two nothing lead in this one." <laughs> um, but but I, like you know, Eric Stevens, who does a phenomenal job covering the Ducks every day uh, for us at the Athletic. I mean, he, you know, he and I talk about this all the time, and it's just a matter of at this point in the year what does it accomplish? Um, You know, clearly it's a season that is a transition year, which really sucks for veteran guys like Ryan Miller, for example, who are looking for that one last shot at a cup um, and felt that when he signed here, um, you know, he's close to his family and um, really able to, and thought it it just, a guy like him specifically, I just think of, because also (laughs) I like him an awful lot as a person. Um, But uh you know, like it just seems like it's a transition year and um, you know, maybe you just sort of hit the point, you just ride it out. And I mean, look, like I'm, I'm working on some stuff on some players in San Diego and by all accounts, I mean, Dallas Eakins has done an amazing job developing those guys down there and getting them ready to play in the NHL. And that's nothing to sneeze at when you're trying to figure out your coaching situation with this team moving forward and that he's getting the next generation ready and maybe he gets them ready and he's the coach next year, or maybe he's not. But uh, at the end of the day, he's a, one of the best development coaches, developmental coaches uh, in pro hockey. And so having him down there is not the worst thing in the world for the Ducks. But, yeah, it does sort of feel like when you have a team down there that's playing that well 
and everyone just always speaks so glowingly about him and things just seem like they're backsliding up the NHL level. I'm sure that as fans, you all just probably sit back and you're like, oh man, really? Like, come on, when's this going to finally happen? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's so what you're trying, like what you've kind of said to me that I've gathered out of this is it's kind of the culmination of many things that have gone wrong all at the same time between injuries, uh, especially the guys like Ryan Kessler, as you mentioned, are big matchup guys that Carl likes to put out against top end players like McDavid and Crosby. And he just gets chewed up at this point in his career. And, you know, maybe there's some guys having down years. I mean, you look across the board, no one's really stood out as a guy that's been spectacular other than John Gibson or maybe Andre Kasha. So, I mean, that's right. That's, that's kind of how I see and it. And Kasha's hurt. Right. And now Kasha's he's done for the, the rest, rest of the year. year. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, Fowler, I mean, look, Fowler's not had a good year, even when he's been healthy. Uh, Lindholm, Manson, I mean, they've all not been good when they've been healthy. Is that, a, is that the coach? I have no idea. I don't think so, but um, it, they, I, I think that it has certainly been a tough year if you're a Ducks fan. But look, I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of those names that you mentioned are age 25 or younger, and they have some, by all accounts of people I've talked to, just scouts and coaches and stuff, like some of the guys that have in the minors are legit really good players. So, I think that's a lot to like, but yeah, I mean, right now, like at the NHL level, it's the way this season has gone. It's very hard to, especially the way they've played with just the shot differentials and everything else and the blown leads. And it's, I know it's hard to kind of see the big picture here, but I think the big picture is relatively bright, but I think right now it's, it's a difficult year to swallow if you're a Ducks fan, no question. Yeah, and all of those things together have come to the Ducks losing 14 of their last 16 games, and obviously with some big news like Andre Kasha going out. But a guy we haven't seen all year that I think for a lot of us has been weird not seeing him in Corey Perry is apparently going to make his return on the road trip. What do you think he brings to the lineup? Because this is a guy we're used to seeing all the time, and, and now he's kind of coming in at a point where it's very difficult to make an impact late in the season. So... From all I've gathered and just hearing from, you know, what I've heard from Bob Murray talking about him and various other things is that, I mean, he needed to have this surgery. This was really, really important, uh, not just because of the actual acute injury, but just the wear and tear on the knee for as long as, uh, for I guess, the wear and tear on his knee just in general that's, that's been going on for a number of years now. So this surgery was very important for him. Um, seems like the belief is he will, and I know you hear this a lot of times, uh, and it never happens, but the belief is that by cleaning it up, by having the surgery, he should come back better than before. Um, now, granted, again, he's 30, I think he's 33 now. Uh, he's going to turn 34 uh, after the season or the regular season. But, you know, like, as you get older, and I mean, all of us know as you get older, your body is not exactly as, as spry as it used to be. But uh, if the knee was as bad as they said it was, and I mean, I read Eric's article. You know, when he talked to Corey Perry about just the knee and all the surgeries and everything else that he's had, um, if the knee was indeed as bad as, as they made it out to be, then this should definitely be a good thing. And I mean, I, I, when I was at, at the Blue, or I guess I went to the Blues game at Morning Skate, like Perry looked really good in practice. Now, granted, um, I jokingly say it's about the Kings when I cover them, like Dion Phaneuf is the best player in practice all the time. And then when games <laughs> come, it's a totally different story. But seriously, like, he works very hard in practice. I mean, like, there's, like, like that's sort of his thing. Like, he's just always kind of pushing guys in practice, which is, you know, which is huge. But anyway, at least I think it's important. But anyway, 
um, beyond that, like he looked really good in practice to me. So I, I have to think that maybe there is something to that, uh, that there is something to the fact that the knee, um, that the knee is better, um, that Perry has put himself in a position, in more of a position to succeed than he has in the past. But I don't know. I mean, again, we'll have to see when he actually plays, but, uh, when you look just production speak, or per, speaking of production, I mean, you lose Andre Kasha, which, you know, sucks. But then you gain Corey Perry as a replacement to him, which isn't all that bad. Now, granted, I mean, you'd like to have them both, ideally. But, um, but I mean, this is not as horrible as it would be otherwise if, if both of them weren't in the lineup. Because at the end of the day, Perry can still score 20 and uh, pace himself for 20 and 50 points. And maybe in a shorter season, he just kind of pushes it a little bit harder, doesn't try to keep anything in reserve, as players always do during an 82-game season. And... Maybe we see the best uh, Corey Perry we've seen in a while. Who knows? I think that's what everybody's hoping for, but I feel like some tempered excitement you kind of have to have around it is because everybody hopes the knee is going to be good. And, and like you said, he's looked really good in practice. So it's it's like the hope is there that he could do good. But you look at William Nylander missing less games than Corey Perry did, obviously for a different reason, coming in and just struggling. I think he had three points in 17 games before really breaking out in the last game before the break for the Leafs. It's got to be hard for any guy to miss 51 games and then just hop right back into the pace of play, especially at the end of the year. You know, Barry Trotz, who I used to cover in Nashville, used to make this analogy of it's like trying to catch a moving train. Um, and it's funny, I've heard him say it in Washington. I've heard him say it in the Islanders. I mean, it's, that's what it is, though. It's like, it's like trying to catch a moving train um, and you haven't been moving for that long. Everybody else keeps moving and the pace of play i mean even though it's a long season and guys get kind of tired during the season the pace of play does pick up the execution level does get better uh as the year goes on and to where when you hit the playoffs execution level is super high and when you haven't been a part of that it's hard to catch up so um on that on that note yeah like 100 percent. but also I, i think that this, I, I, from what I've seen of Corey Perry in practice, now, again, it's just practice. Uh, I do think this is something that's going to help him out long-term. I think he, pro- from what I've seen, I, I think he'll be probably better than what you saw last time you saw him. But, again, I could be completely wrong because, as I mentioned, I mean, and, and I know we kind of laughed at this, but it's true. I mean, Dion Phaneuf looks great in practice for the Kings, but he's certainly not the best player when they suit up games on defense. So uh, we'll see how it goes. It kind of throws a, a bit of mystery into the way the Ducks season is going to go because despite all the struggles, they're still one point out of a playoff spot and you've got a lot of these guys returning. Granted, there are some guys going out of the lineup, but we looked last year at the points you needed to, to make the playoffs and it was about, about 97. And if the Ducks were to get to that point this year, they'd need to win 23 of the remaining 31 games to get in. And, and only two teams have been able to do that over the last 32 games, and that's Calgary and, and the Tampa Bay Lightning. Do you think that this team is capable of getting on that type of run and making the playoffs? No, I don't think they'll get on that type of run. But do I think they could make the playoffs? Uh, maybe, because I don't think it's going to take 97 points. I think... I think honestly, it may even just take 85 to get in. I mean, the the yeah. the, the playoff teams in the Western Conference this year, the high end teams are really good. The bottom end teams are, at least for the salary cap era, not very good. 
So, I mean, you look at the pace they're all on, they're all on pace for like 82 points or 85 points. So I don't think 90, I think 97 gets you in the top three this year. I don't think that it, and and you're definitely in like a hundred percent totally. in. like, there's no question about it. I think that, you know, probably realistically, if they can keep a point per game pace, then which is blows my mind because that just always feels like it's near the bottom of the division. But um, if they can keep that up, then yeah, they got a shot. But I mean, again, like I think I maybe I don't remember if I mentioned this, but um, their underlying numbers are so bad that I don't see that happening just because of that. But again, I mean, Corey Perry comes back and. Um, you know, John Gibson gets rested, gets on a bit of a roll. Who knows? Anything could happen. So, um, you know, that's sort of the, the wonder of the salary cap era in this league is that a lot of teams are supposed to be pretty similar in skill. So um, maybe they can do it. Who knows? It's almost yeah. beneficial if they just don't. It's almost just like they should probably just not make the playoffs and eat the season and get a high draft pick at this point. Because, like, what's the point of going in, and other than just from a Sam Willie's making money perspective, what's the point of going in and getting bounced out in the first round again? Um, the Sam Willie's making money. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. Which honestly, like, isn't, <laughs> yeah, which isn't the worst thing in the world for the, for the franchise and, and the long-term future of it. I mean, I, I mean, they're, they're not – I mean, even though they're based in Southern California, this is not – a similar situation to sort of the the bigger market teams that don't need to worry about the first, you know, about getting two extra games of gate. I mean, there's a team that getting two extra games of gate actually means something to them. And to not get that probably isn't that great, uh, which is in part, I think, how Bob Murray has to manage this group. But overall, um, just kind of watching them in general, um, you know, I, I maybe you just, I mean, maybe you just kind of give, you know, Martin Madden, who is, for my money is one of the best scouts in the entire league, uh, you give him a shot at, at a, get a really high pick and, and hope he hits it. And, uh, and maybe that's the best case scenario than, rather than just kind of squeezing into the playoffs and then getting bounced. But, and look, no matter how much people remember how the, the Ducks have always beat Calgary in the playoffs, like that's coming to an end at some point. I mean, the Flames are that much better than them. And if they end up playing the Flames in the first round, that's going to be the entire storyline going into the series. And they're going to be so pissed off. They're going to, like, it, it, it's not going to be that way forever. So, um, so yeah, like, I mean, maybe that's sort of the better option, but I mean, I, I do think that the extra two games of gate is certainly not something to sneeze at by any stretch of the imagination. It is crazy though, that uh, despite the struggles, we are still talking about the playoffs for the ducks, but then you, you flip it to the other side and you look at the LA Kings and they have a clear direction going forward right now. Obviously the, the Muzzin trade was the big news that despite having a break, you still had to uh, do some sort of reporting on the Kings and they end up trading Muzzin to the, the Maple Leafs for Grunstrom, Dursey and in a 2019 first round pick. Uh, this obviously signals a, a certain direction for Rob Blake. How do you think that trade is going to work out for the Kings or, or work out for the Leafs? I think for the Leafs, it can only – everyone's calling it a win, so it probably won't work out for them. I mean, really, the expectations are so high. Um, it's like Jake Muzzin has to put up a point per game and win the Norris Trophy for it to actually work. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I feel bad for him. I like him a lot, but I mean, like he's coming in and it's this kind of this almost savior like thing where I'm just like, dude, it's, it's like Jake Muzzin's a phenomenal hockey player, but it's Jake Muzzin, like you know, he's not. You're not getting Bobby Orr here, but 
Um, <laughs> but I, I think for the Leafs, it, I think for the Leafs, it works pretty well because it gets them exactly what they need. And and he's a really good defenseman. I mean, like you guys have seen him out here for a long time. He's he's you know everyone. It's almost like he's flown under the radar so much that that's all people talk about with him. Uh, so it's not going to be the case anymore when he's in Toronto. But uh, yeah, I, I, I like that deal a lot for Toronto. And I like it for L.A. too because, look, I mean, they still get a first-round pick. They really need more assets in their, in their system. I mean, look at how bad Ontario is right now. I mean, I mean, they just – I mean, like Cal Peterson, you look at his numbers in Ontario versus the NHL, it's crazy. Uh, how bad they are in Ontario versus how good they are in the NHL. And that's just because Ontario is so bad right now. Uh, cause it's so young. So um, I, I think it's a good deal for LA. I think it's a good deal for, uh, I think it's a good deal for Toronto. Um, I, I think both teams got what they wanted. We always look at these trades, especially when they come uh, significantly in advance of the trade deadline as possibly being like a domino piece or a trade that sets the price. Do you think, and other teams may be looking to move a left-shot defenseman, possibly the Ducks, if they're looking to move Cam Fowler. Does that set the price now for what a guy like Jake Muzzin is going to get? Maybe, but, I mean, I don't think the Ducks are looking to trade Cam Fowler. Um, but, I mean, who knows? I mean, it just depends on how Bob Murray... I think, if anything, they end up trading Silverberg before they trade anyone else. Um, I don't see Fowler as being... Unless they're... Unless they believe that highly in Josh Mahura, um, I don't see them moving a guy who is that type of pedigree um, right now who's that young. He's only 27 years old. Uh, it's still relatively young, but maybe it sets the price. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of people who seem to think that the Kings moved too early on that. But at the end of the day, they got a first and two seconds, essentially, for uh, for a guy they essentially signed as a, as a free agent uh, years ago. So I think they did pretty well for themselves overall. And the decision to actually bring in Jake Muzzin to begin with and how that's all worked out. So speaking of the Kings and kind of mixing in Bob Murray back into this, I mean, both teams are obviously in, from what it looks like, at least from a fan perspective, similar positions, aging core, um, big contracts on the books that are hard to move. But uh, it seems like both GMs are taking different approaches. Do you, do you see any reasoning behind that kind of the way the way Rob Blake's doing it compared to the way Murray's doing it? Because I almost feel like Murray should kind of do the same thing and, and make more of a splash on getting rid of big names. Well, the big difference between the Ducks and the Kings is simple, is that the Ducks have a lot of really good players in the minors right now, and the Kings just do not. And the Ducks have a lot of really good players in the minors, who will play in the NHL. And from what I've seen out of them, I mean, should play at least 500 games in this league. And that's, that's incredible. If you think about it, just, I mean, there's a lot of guys down there or who have kind of shuttled back and forth, who I think will have good NHL careers. Max Jones, Isaac Lundstrom, Troy Terry, uh, Josh Mahura, um, who am I forgetting? Sam Steele's another one, Max Comtois. Like they have a lot of really, really good players. So they have the, the one stud prospect, no, but they have guys who are excellent players who they who can move up and be uh, important members of this team for a long time and be important members of this team for a long time that are re- relatively cheap. I think the Kings don't have a ton of assets. They traded a lot of high draft picks. They trade a lot of prospects over the years, and they're trying to sort of restock their cupboard and. Um, they have a lot of guys. Uh, I mean, the, the difference too, also with the Ducks, is the Ducks don't have a ton of tradable contracts. The Kings actually do. 
Like they actually have guys who you could actually deal uh, and get something for and who are veterans that other teams want. Whereas, I mean, if you're the Ducks, first off, I don't think you could trade Ryan Kessler if you wanted to. And second, I don't think anyone would want his contract uh, on top of the fact he has an NMC. I mean, same goes for Corey Perry, uh, Patrick Eves. Uh, the list goes on and on. So I, I don't think the Ducks have a ton of movable assets that they would even want to move to begin with. But again, they also have some really good young players uh, that puts Bob Murray in more of a position of strength to be more patient and do what he wants to do rather than Rob Blake, who just saw the wheels completely fall off this year and has to adjust on the fly. So when you're, when you're talking about the Ducks having those assets and, and um, you know, having some immovable contracts at the same time, so it's going to take some time for this kind of, I think, to filter into the roster. So when you're talking about a guy like Ryan Kessler, do you feel like that's more of a buyout option this summer in order to move that, if that's something that, that Murray wants to do? I know that Kessler gives his heart and soul to the team, and, I mean, I love that guy as a player, but, uh, you know, we talked you know, just recently on this show right now, it's, he, he's just not been the same guy. So do you think there's maybe a buyout option on Kessler? Mm, man, that's a tough call. Because on the one hand, I can't see the Sam Wellies forking over that money to buy him out. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, it, it makes some sense. Um, there's also the sort of, you know, Marion Hosa, Chris Pronger Island, where you go to an LTIR. <laughs> uh, you know, like those are those are the options that you have to look at with him at some point. Is it this summer? I don't know. But, I mean, look, we've all watched him this year and even last year. And, like, the, the decline was swift after surgery. Um, it, it really sucks for those of us who have seen him play at his best. I remember when I covered Nashville, that 2011 playoff series he had with Vancouver against the Preds was just unreal how he completely took it over. I mean, I I don't know if I've ever seen one player just dominate another team the way he did in that series. It was it was incredible. Uh, but, I mean, age is what it is. He's 34 years old. He's not the same player he was before. And uh, that's a lot of money that you're paying him. Um, I don't see him giving up. I think the total number he's owed from a real dollars perspective is about $20 million. Uh, I definitely don't see him looking to give up that. That's a lot of money, even though he's made a lot of money in his career. So I don't know. I mean, the Ducks are going to have to try to figure out how to handle this moving forward but uh, and try to figure out what he wants to do. But at the end of the day, that's a, that's a tough conversation that has to happen, I think, at some point. So I, I mean, so you're you're kind of not of the of the mind of like burning it all down though, right? I mean, you think the Ducks have enough to retool here quickly because of the guys they have in the minors, right? I mean, that's not something that I do. That's I do. just something that, and, that Ducks Twitter's that. been like upset about. So yeah, and I, I do actually. I, I don't think. I mean, look, you got to make some some tough choices. But let's say you're able to dash Kessler and LTIR. That's a lot of money you have open all of a sudden. Uh, let's say you're able to figure out Eves, or let's say Eves decides to retire. I mean, he's obviously given it a go the last couple of years, but there's just a lot of things beyond his control that have happened, uh, you know, illness and then injury. So then all of a sudden, you know, you maybe have like $9 million or close to $10 million of cap space between those two players. Um, that changes a lot with what you do with your offseason, if you're able to kind of figure that out. Um, I mean, I think that there's, they have a path forward. There's no question, especially when you have a 25-year-old goaltender who's as good as John Gibson, uh, the four defensemen they have. You can bring in a coach if it's not Randy Carlisle, which doesn't seem like 
it will be at this stage. But if you can bring in a coach who under, who can figure out how to unlock the potential of a lot of these guys. Um, and like, for example, I mean, one thing that I, I would love to explore is Brandon Montour to me is one of the most talented offensive defensemen I've seen play in the NHL last few years. And they can't figure out how to use them. I mean, I, I maybe that's part, on part of the player, but I mean, he, like he has such a wonderful skill set. I, I don't, I don't, I just don't get it. So there, there's a lot of things that I think are right about the Ducks. I think this year probably was a transition year. Um, maybe there was sort of the expectation level raised a little bit so that people obviously you don't want to go into a season saying we're in a transition year. People don't come to the games and watch this team lose. Um, but I, I think there's actually a lot to like about this team moving forward, even if right now the results have been very, very poor. Yeah, I think you look at a lot of the young guys coming up and, and the fact that they're either ready now or very close to being ready to, to make an impact in the NHL. I mean, we've seen it with Max Jones and Troy Terry getting uh, recent call-ups again and still how Sam Steele is doing very well in San Diego and Maxim Comtois is doing well uh, making his debut back in the QMJHL. But it, it just seems like going into the deadline, they're in that weird spot where they could be buyers if they wanted to uh, or they could be sellers, but maybe not to the extent where you can't really move those big deals off. The one guy who's come up is Jakob Silverberg, and you know Murray's obviously come out and said that he wants to try and resign him, but he doesn't strike me as the type of guy to come out and say he's actively going to move him. Do you think Silverberg is a part of this team after the trade deadline on February 25th? I don't know. I really don't. I mean, so again, like I, I know I've always seen to bring this up wherever I go. You could probably make a drinking game of this if you actually listen to my radio hits. But um, and I don't know who would listen to that many of my radio hits. So like when I covered Nashville, um, you know, I covered the Ryan Suter situation, and he got to UFA. And when guys get to UFA, they're gone. I mean, wh- and why would they not? I mean, yeah. they're going to get way more unless they love where they are. They're going to get way more money. They're going to get to pick wherever they want to go. Are there a lot of places to me personally, like I would, I think are better than Anaheim from a lifestyle perspective, maybe like one or two cities in the entire league. And you can make an argument Anaheim's better. I mean, it's, it's a great place to play. It's a great place to live. Um, but it's a great place to raise a family. I know he has a young child, but I, you know, I, I think when guys get to that point, they're gone um, or they're overpriced or they're, or they're out of your price range and you can't do anything about it. So I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I think that on the one hand you can make an argument for, for dealing him if you're, if he's not signed by that point. Um, on the other hand, I think maybe you make a big run at him because you can't just have kids in your lineup, but I, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a tough call. Like it just depends on what Brian or Bob Murray's plan is and how he, sees this team um, and what his overall long-term direction is. Because the one thing I, you know, he has made his mistakes. There's no question about that, but he always seems to have a very good long range model for how this team is going to look. And I think that, you know, and and that's sort of the one thing is like, you know, because we obviously don't get to talk to him that much. It's hard to gauge what that is. But when it happens and it all comes together, you're like, Oh wow, that makes a lot of sense. So I don't know how he's going to approach this, but uh I'm sure he has something figured out um, for how for every single situation, because I think that's one thing he's very, very good at. 
Yeah, that's the the one thing you kind of notice. And the only thing that worries me about just the the construction of this roster the way it is now, and I don't think there's any issue keeping guys in the minors uh, for a little bit longer. I mean, Detroit made their success from keeping guys in the minors until they're 21, 22, and making sure they're they're ready to come up. But you know, you look at the way the roster is now. Even if they don't bring back Silverberg, you've still got uh, Eves if he's there next year. Cash and Perry on the right side. You've got Raquel pro- probably uh, Shore and Richie on the left side, and then you've got Henry Kessler and Getzlaff down the middle. It doesn't make a lot of room for those kids to come up, not just yet next year, but the years after. It almost seems like if you want to kind of transition into those younger players, you got to figure out a way to make some room in the top nine. Otherwise, they might as well be playing in San Diego for the next couple of years. I'm sure he's got to figure it out to some degree, but I, I, I don't disagree with you on that sense, but I, I'm sure he knows that some guys like Max Jones, Troy Terry are pretty much ready at this point. I mean, he, he for sure would definitely ready. Uh, maybe he's a little more time going back and forth, but to me, he's an NHL player. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to like about that group. And I think that they know that there's some guys who got to play next year. Well, hey, Josh, we really appreciate you coming on the show and talking Ducks, and uh, I'm sure that uh, we will have you back on again at some point to, after we sort out what's going to happen here in the coming months. But uh, we really appreciate you coming on again. Anytime, anytime. So you guys can find Josh uh, at The Athletic. He covers the Kings there, and you can also find him on Twitter, at Joshua Cooper. And uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Have a great one.